And I want to encourage you to take out your Bible as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. As we're now looking at character studies and we're going to look at the life of Lot. The life of Lot today, the cost of compromise. And that's a very important story that we need to look at. Has a lot of lasting implications in our life. Thank you. So turn over to Genesis chapter 13, if you would. Genesis chapter 13. I encourage you to have out your notes, if you would. As I said, I've preached this message numerous times throughout the years, and I'm glad we come to this point in our time together in the book of Genesis. Genesis 13, verse 1. Abram went up from Egypt, and his, and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him. And he journeyed on from the Nagab as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites... And the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Verse 9, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me, Abram said. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other, and Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley. And here's the key, moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. King James said he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And may God have his blessing as we read his word this morning. Well, there's a book out called Over the Edge, People Who've Died at the Grand Canyon in Arizona since 1870. Most people have died because of airplane crashes. Other people have died when there were floods and they were rafting down the river at the bottom of the canyon. Some committed suicide. But there's also those that did some very silly things that cost them their lives. They want to see how close they could get to the very edge of the rim. Now, I haven't been there. Some of you have been there. But uh, it's pretty interesting to think about. They say that the Grand King is 277 miles long, 18 miles wide in places. It attains a depth of over a mile at 6,000 feet. They say that um, the temperatures can get up to 100 degrees causing severe heat stroke and dehydration. But isn't it interesting that the way some people have died in 1992, there was a man who was uh, 38 years old, and he wanted to scare his teenage daughter. So he jumped up on the barrier wall that protected uh, him from going over the canyon, and he pretended to lose his balance, and he jumped to a little, little piece that was left out beyond the barrier to scare her. But unfortunately, he slipped and fell 400 feet to his death. 
There's a story of a woman who was uh, hiking. She was 18 years old, and she wanted to go out to this particular ledge called Inspiration Point. And she thought it was safe, and it was 1,500 feet or so above the bottom. And she went out to get this beautiful picture, and the rocks gave way, and she fell to her death. The author talks about how he would rather, if he's going to get that close, have a hang glider or a parachute rather than where I'll stand 10 yards away from the edge. And many of us, we approach sin by asking the question, how close can I get without crossing the line? We avoid God's warning signs and then edge right up to the edge of disaster, confident that we, unlike any other people, can avoid the crash of sin and its consequences in our life. Like the child who listens to a parent's warning but wants to test the boundaries, we are so much like that in our lives. We think sin, getting to the edge of sin, we have a false sense of security. I don't know about you, but I get weary in my soul waking up daily and realizing that I've got the sinful nature. I have to deal with temptation. I have to deal with struggles. I have to put the armor on and fight the battle once again. It's hard enough as each of us individually have to deal with that, but we have to see the effects of it around us, whether it's right in our family or our extended family or those in the workplace. We see it in our culture, in our world. We can see if more than ever with the communication, the media sources all around us, we see the effects of it because we see things happening so quickly now because they can be spread very fast. You and I, we grieve over the enormity of sin the pain it brings, and the depth of depravity we see in this world. Add to that, to the sins we see and we deal with in our private lives, but we see the public sin of Christian leaders all around us. And so we need to realize that we're being slowly conditioned into the ways of the evil one. And you've heard this illustration numerous times. If you've been in science class, you take a beaker of water, right? And you put a frog in it. And frogs are quick to adapt to temperature changes. And you put a, a Bunsen burner underneath it. And you heat it one degree at a time. And slowly over time, the frog's body adjusts to the heat. And he's cooked to death over time. That's the erosion of sin. That's how we get conditioned to sin in our lives. We see the compromise of what God's word says and the conformity to the world all around us in churches today. So we need to learn to stand on the commands of God's word and the convictions the Holy Spirit places in our lives to avoid the erosion of our standards into sinful behavior. After all, we're called to be holy, and that, my friends, is a tall task. Almost an, it is an impossible task apart from the Holy Spirit to occur in our lives. So let's follow the story as it's written in Genesis about Lot and his slow road down to worldly compromise. It begins with curiosity. Curiosity. We just read that story. He and Abram were disagreeing, at least the herdsmen were, about where their uh, livestock should feed in the pasture. There wasn't enough land. They became very successful, both of them. And so Lot chose the land that was beautiful, and he moved and pitched his tent toward Sodom. And it says in verse 12 of chapter 13, to repeat once again, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And he knew this. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. You see his curiosity. He didn't want to be in the city yet, but he wanted to get close. He wanted to find out what, was, what it was like. 
over there in Sodom and Gomorrah. So for us, point on the outline, sin is inviting and enticing. Sin is inviting and enticing. And don't let anyone tell you that sin is not fun. It is. And the next point, we'll talk about that. But it's inviting. It's enticing. It's why we want to give into it. We see in James 1, 13 through 14, that when we are tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. It's because we have a sinful nature. And it's not a sin when we're tempted. It's what we do with the temptation that matters. And it goes on to say that when sin gives birth in our bodies, in our mind, and when we carry it out, it brings forth death. And I think it's in James 1.15, later on in that chapter. So sin is inviting and enticing. Second of all, sin is fun for a season. It's fun. You know, it would be fun to jump off the Grand King and have the thrill there. The problem is the bottom, landing, right? That's the problem. There's a consequence. There's, sin is fun for a season. Hebrews 11.25, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. Notice what he said, rather... To, than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Sin is pleasurable for a short time, but there's always a pay, <clears throat> excuse me, a payday. There's always a day that you're going to have to pay for the consequences of what you've done. I remember when I was a young boy watching on TV, Lal Alzado played for the Oakland Raiders. He was always a nemesis to my Pittsburgh Steelers. He's a very good football player. He bulked up. But he was famous for his steroid use. And after his NFL career was over, I remember seeing Lalo Zedo on the Johnny Carson show. And he was just a frail, small human being at that point. And his life was about to end because of steroid use. And he warned against athletes using steroids because he sold his soul to have an NFL career, but it shortened his life. Think of the story of Mickey Mantle, the great baseball player for the New York Yankees. Tremendous baseball player. And Bobby Richardson was the second baseman, and Bobby Richardson was a Christian. And later, at the end of Mickey Mantle's life, he was dying from cirrhosis of the liver because he abused alcohol all of his adult life. And Bobby Richardson, who was a Christian, on near the end of Mickey Mantle's life, was able to share the gospel and he was able to come to Christ, but Mickey Mantle even said in a little tract that was published with, with his testimony, saying, stay away from alcohol because the consequences are horrific. Sin is fun for a season, but then there's a payday at the end. And then sin, when given birth, leads to death, the verse I alluded to just a few moments ago. Then after desire, James 1.15 has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. If we play with sin, if we harbor it, if we allow it to become a habit in our life, it's going to bring us to spiritual death for those that may not know Christ. It's certainly going to hamper us when we stand before Christ at the judgment seat and answer for our bad motives, our bad actions, our bad uh, words. But also, it'll hurt and damage many people in this life. And so we have to make sure that we pull out the roots of sin early in our lives. Sin always starts as a thought that leads to an idea that oftentimes becomes an action. 
And we just shared this, uh, this little uh, quote a few weeks ago. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a lifetime. See how sin builds and becomes a habit in your life. And then it's like a snowball effect. Later on, it'll bring tremendous consequences. You can look at the story of Eve. You can look at the story of Achan. You can look at the story of King David. Especially if you read this in the King James Version. You see these three progressions that they went through. And let's look at Eve, for example, in the garden when Satan came and, and, and deceived her with the snake. And she looked at that fruit. She saw it, and then she meditated and thought about it and, and looked at it, and then she took it and ate it. You see the same progression with Achan when he was told not to bring the spoils back after the battle was over. It says in, in Joshua chapter 7, I believe it is, that he saw he looked and he took. And what, did, what happened in 2 Samuel with David and Bathsheba? He was up on the top of his palace. He saw Bathsheba bathing. He saw, he looked, he took. You see the progression there that in our minds, it begins to take root if we don't take care of it. And then eventually, it will become full-blown sin. How is it that we measure the size of a fire? We do that by the number of firefighters and fire engines sent to fight against it. How do we measure the seriousness of a medical condition? By the amount of risk that the doctors take in prescribing dangerous antibiotics or surgical procedures. How do we measure the gravity of sin and the incomparable vastness of God's love for us? By looking at the magnitude of what God has done for us in Jesus, the Son of God, who became like a common criminal for our sake and took our place on the cross of Calvary. That's how big sin is to God. So our application here is we should ask ourselves how far away we can get to avoid giving in to sin. How far away can we get from giving in to sin? Too many of us, we like to get wrapped to the edge. We like to flirt with disaster, don't we, in this area of sin because we're curious. But if we continue giving in to sin, it leads to a habit and it deadens our sensitivity to sin. Second point, Lot moved from curiosity to compliance. So now we jump ahead to Genesis 19. I encourage you to turn over there. Lot moves from curiosity to compliance, to becoming like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Ellen Goodman in the Boston Globe said this, Americans once expected parents to raise their children in accordance with the dominant cultural messages. Today, they're expected to raise their children in opposition to them. Once the chorus of cultural values was full of ministers, teachers, neighbors, and leaders, they demanded more conformity but offered more support. Now the messengers are violent cartoon characters, rappers, and celebrities selling sneakers. Parents are considered responsible only if they're successful in their resistance. That's what makes child raising harder. It's not, not just that American families have less time with their kids. It's that we have to spend more of this time doing battle with our own culture. And many in this room could say amen to that, to have kids. And you know what it's like, raising your kids in this situation, in this world that's around us right now. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, two angels came to visit Lot. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And where was Lot? 
He wasn't in his tent far away from Sodom. He's now sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw these angels, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And Lot made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. You see, compliance to sin is a gradual process. Compliance to sin is a gradual process. When somebody falls for whatever reason, morally or because they stole money or whatever, it started out very small one day, and it began to build over time. We see here Lot is now in the city gate. What does that mean? Well, he's actually a leader in the city with both the government and also as a business leader. He's gained acceptance as being an important leader in the city. The elders would meet at the city gate every day and conduct business and pass laws and ordinances for the city that they were in. And Lot was right in there there with them. And I think about when I was a youth pastor for 18 years. I think about how at that time we didn't have cell phones and we didn't even have VCRs or DVD players or anything like that. And so at that time you could encourage teenagers to avoid sin in many ways. But now, even now and even at the end of my time of being a youth pastor, you have to talk about how to discern uh, the things in your life to stay away from sin. We think of our cell phones. Josh McDowell has a talk on just one click away. You're just one click away as a any of us, to looking at pornography. Do you realize that 30%, 30% of all the internet sites are pornographic? And so I think about that. I think about how uh, the temptations involved with dating relationships, the temptation of extramarital affairs in our culture, of addictions. And if we don't deal with the root issues that cause us to sin, we're going to pay the price. In our culture, one of the big things is stress. And people find escape from stress through materialism, through food, through extreme worry and anxiety. They hurt relationships because they don't know how to deal with stress properly. Properly, We think of peer pressure. Peer pressure for young people and even us adults, it's more pressure than ever on us to conform to the world, to give in, especially if we're in the workplace or we're at school with our friends. We see that. We think of those that have been abused, and many, many people have come out in recent years that have been abused in the young ages of their life. And if they don't get counsel, if they don't deal with that abuse in their life, the cycle can continue, or at least the damage from it will continue in that person's life and affect the relationships of those around you. So if we don't deal with the root problems of sin in our lives, We develop a pattern, a cycle for this behavior, and a trap that's hard to get out of. In Proverbs chapter 7, that whole chapter is dedicated to what happens to a man who falls into an adulterous relationship. In Proverbs 7, 21, the writer concludes the chapter with these words, with much seductive speech, the woman persuades him with her smooth talk, she compels him, and all at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver 
As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. We see compliance to sin always begins with compromise in little areas of their life. Compliance to small areas of their life. I've been told, there's been a study done and pastors that have been talked to that have failed morally and fell out of the ministry because of their moral failure. And two of the main reasons that they fell were these. One, they didn't spend time in prayer with God. They didn't have a solid prayer life with God. And second of all, they didn't have accountability. They didn't have accountability. They didn't allow themselves to be accountable to anyone else. And pretty soon they thought the compromise in little areas began to see that they could get away with that and they move on to bigger areas in their life. Compliance means to make a concession to something derogatory or prejudicial such as our principles. It also means to make a shameful or disreputable concession to something in our lives. We are willing we are willing to pay a high price for acceptance instead of doing what's right. We begin to think that we have rights and we can try to explain to God why we do the things we do. Be careful. Be careful about bargaining with God about areas of compromising your life. It's like that slow erosion I talked about earlier about that young man, about a young man. This young man was in China and he was riding his electric scooter and he was riding down the road and all of a sudden, without him realizing it, the ground opened up on the road and he drove right into that road and it was found out later that he was looking at his cell phone. He didn't even see the hole in front of him. Thankfully, he got out of there alive. But that's like the slow erosion that goes on. That sinkhole didn't just happen all at once. There was a process of erosion going on underneath the hole until the final big abyss opened up. I think about the pornography industry, it's enormous, raking in an estimated $16.9 billion each year in the United States alone. The costs associated with this misuse and addiction are more indirect and its financial impact can be difficult to measure. Some social media platforms and websites that you and I use have soft forms of pornography on them. Sex trafficking is very, very lucrative. I heard a talk by a local woman this week talking to the city officials here in Bettendorf and how she talked about how the real benefit of sex trafficking is that they can take one person and use them sexually and increase their income. They don't have to make new product all the time. They can use the same person over and over and over again to make lots of money. What used to be an issue of talking to teens about premarital sex has become a huge topic when we think about gender dysphoria issues. That makes teenagers' life facing temptation very challenging. How do we teach our kids and teenagers to live holy lives in this crazed culture? Well, we have to teach ourselves and others how to be discerning, how to set up boundaries, how to set up accountability. It's so important as a teenager, I used to remember teaching about this, that they set their boundaries up before they begin to date. I had a whole thing about when you know you're ready to date as a teenager. And it was after one of the things to set up your boundaries based on what God's word said, so that in the moment you have some boundaries set rather than giving in to your emotions at the time. 
So we have to teach ourselves to have boundaries with accountability. And one purpose of God's word is to keep us honest and focused on God's boundaries because he promises us if we'll stay within his guardrails, he'll provide provision and protection for our lives. That way we avoid the heartaches and the consequences that are in the world. The application here is that we need to set up boundaries to avoid giving in to temptation. To say, this is as far as I'm going to go and that's it. I'm not going to watch these kind of movies. I'm not going to get involved on these media discussions or whatever it may be. But setting up boundaries, setting up guardrails based on scriptural principles. It'll help you when you're in the heat of the battle and the temptation and know that you've set these things up in your mind. You know, when you compromise, you give the devil a foothold into your life. You leave God behind and break your intimate fellowship with him. This is when we move out of God's will and we start living for ourselves. The third thing we see about Lot was his confusion. Okay, he was curious, he started to comply. Now he's confused about what's right and what's wrong, about what God commands. In Genesis 19, 4 through 13, but before the angels went to bed or lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called the lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with these men. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door open or door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Verse 11, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Notice some things here. We see that Lot is rationalizing his sin. You and I, we tend to rationalize our sin. We lie to ourselves. We're not honest. We can deceive ourselves. We lie to other people. And if we're honest, we lie to God at times too. We don't agree with him what sin really is. Second of all, we sometimes do ungodly things to get out of a predicament. Sometimes we think it's easier to lie than to tell the truth because to tell the truth means you've got to explain a whole lot of things or do other things. So if we just tell a lie, it'll get me out of the predicament. But despite what some may say, two wrongs never make it right. We rationalize that the ends justify the means. We see that all the time in our culture right in front of us right now. Those people will say, well, I did this because it's going to benefit in the long run. It's going to help so-and-so in the long run. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then we experience spiritual amnesia, if we're honest. We quickly forget or choose to forget what happened the last time we fell into habitual sin. We think, it won't be the same way this time. I can get away with it this time. 
We conveniently forget the consequences and we focus on the pleasure of sin. We look for short-term gratification instead of seeking holiness in our lives. Another thing we do is we compare ourselves to others instead of God's standards. We compare ourselves to others. Well, I'm not as bad as that Christian over there. I'm better than this Christian over here. I haven't done X, Y, and Z. But Paul says that's foolishness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Without understanding. Another thing we do is we get cloudy about what's right and wrong. That's what happened with Lot. He was willing to offer his two daughters so they wouldn't do terrible things to these two angels that was in, the, in, the, in his house. Sin is no longer black and white, even though the Bible says it is. That's one of the reasons I handed out that list of sin and weights today. For you to look at, look up the scriptures. We need to remind ourselves what, how God looks at sin and what he considers sin. We think of the issue going on around us with sexual situations where people are justifying living together before marriage and all kinds of other things with homosexuality and born-again Christians trying to claim that they can be gay and live that lifestyle and all that that's going on around us to think about. And then another thing is we sear our consciences. We sear our consciences. It's like a hot iron or fire on flesh we can go so far with sin and our conscience will no longer listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit no longer has the strong influence in our life that he once had. If we condition ourselves too much to sin, that will occur. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul warned us. He said, do not quench the Spirit. When the Spirit's telling you or bringing conviction into your life, that's your time to respond and do what God wants and repent and turn back to him. In Ephesians 4.30, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity. He's a person. He can be grieved. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's grieved when we sin, especially when he lives within us and is willing to tell us when we're about to give in to sin. You see, the Old Testament display of God's wrath, as we're talking about here, is that of the fact that Sodom and Gomorrah, we see fire and brimstone comes down and destroys it. We see whole civilizations being wiped out. But then you get to the New Testament, as Tony Evans talks about, and you get to Romans 1, and it's God's passive wrath, where he allows man to do whatever they want and let them have the consequences of their sin. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is that we get to do what we want to do, without any restrictions in our life, if it's wrong. And so we're living out what Paul said in our culture right around us in Romans 1, 18 through 32. It's like the cycle of sin that we've been studying about in the men's group in the book of Judges. The cycle is a spiral downward into the depths of depravity. And many Christians do not fear God anymore. They don't have that reverence, that sense that one day they're going to stand before God and answer for their actions answer for their motives and their thoughts. It's true that our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, but we will stand before God based on our actions, motives, and thoughts to give an account. Hebrews 10.31 says it's a fearful thing 
to fall into the hands of the living God. The problem is, in many of our churches, is that we're watering down the gospel. We're watering down who God is and his word because we want to be accepted into the mainstream of culture. We want to be relevant. We want to lead people into the kingdom, but we don't want to speak on the controversial, difficult things in the word of God. As I've talked to leaders of pregnancy resources, they told me one time that how upsetting it is that there's so many churches in the Quad Cities that support pregnancy resources, but when they ask to come and speak for a few moments about abortion, evangelical churches, some of them do not want that because it's too controversial to speak about. We need to be willing to speak about the whole counsel of God. Billy Graham said this, we are dangerously near to saying to the prodigal son, it's not necessary to return to your father and home. We can make you comfortable in your pig pen. So we need to be careful that we're honest about what sin is and what the truth is. C.S. Lewis observed this, and you might want to write this quote down. This is a great quote. C.S. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. In other words, God gives them over to do whatever you want, but you will suffer the consequences at the end of your life. Or you can bow now and let Jesus be the Lord of your life. Like Jesus did as he wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, thy will be done. We begin to see gray areas in scripture. Remember a sign that was out in front of a church one time that said, God's laws have no loopholes. God does not grade on the curve. This is the final test right here, all that we need to know for the final exam. So our application, we should pray that we will recognize and call sin by its name in our lives, the way God looks at it. We must recognize and call sin by its name in our lives. Lot did not plan on offering his daughters to the homosexual men, I'm sure, when he first pitched his tent towards Sodom. But over time, tremendous spiritual erosion has taken place. And now we see the cost of compromise. The cost of compromise. We see, first of all, cost Lot his testimony for the Lord. Genesis 19:14. So Lot went out. He said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting or joking. His testimony for the Lord was meaningless because his lifestyle didn't match his words. And they thought he was joking. Second of all, cost Lot's son-in-laws their very lives. In verse 16, but Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And of course, fire and brimstone came and destroyed everything, including Lot's son-in-laws. Thirdly, it cost Lot's wife her life. And many of you know that story about how his wife turns into a pillar of salt. But in verse 17 of Genesis 19, it describes us. And as the angels brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. 
and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Verse 20, behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there, Lot said. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? And the angel said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also. I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. It cost Lot's wife her life. And lastly, it cost Lot's his morality. It cost Lot his personal morality. Later on in this chapter, chapter 19, verses 30 to 38, we read about how when they got to Zoar, and his daughter said, well, we're not going to be able to get married. We're not going to be able to have children. Let's get our father drunk and commit incest. And that's exactly what happened in verse 38. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites to this day. Here's the application. You and I cannot afford the price tag sin requires. Be reminded of that. You and I, we cannot afford the price tag that sin requires. You've ever looked at a car that you always wanted, but you look at the price tag, you realize you can't make the payments? It's the same way with sin in our life. We think we can, we can do this, but we can't afford paying the price for our sin. Conformity to sin kills every time. It's a downward spiral like starting down a water slide or a roller coaster. There's always a point of no return. Have you ever been to a water park and they have one of those Geronimo slides? You climb the long ladder to get up there and you're several stories high. You lay down and they say, cross your hands over your chest. And you're kind of, you're really nervous because you look down and you see how far down it is. But once you creep over the edge, kind of like a roller coaster, once you go, it's all over. You're going down. And that's the same way. We can flirt with sin to a point. But pretty soon we're going to come over that edge of, and that point of no return. I think of the man who had a boa constrictor as his pet in Florida. And he let it slither around his apartment and everything. Then one night he woke up and the boa constrictor was stretched out lengthwise next to him on his bed. Why was he doing that? He was measuring to see that he could kill him and eat him. And that was the day he got rid of his boa constrictor. The key thought here is do what it takes to be holy as God is holy. And I know we're over time here, but let me just quickly give you five things. Steps to avoid compromise and to live a holy life. First of all, we need to pray daily for sensitivity to sin. We need to pray daily for sensitivity to sin. We can deceive ourselves. Satan can deceive us. There's so many things out there, but we just need to pray, God, help me be aware and sensitive to sin. Second of all, we need to set up boundaries with accountability to avoid giving in to temptation. We've already talked about that. We need boundaries. We need accountability. <clears throat> That's why... Weekly on Sundays, I give a report to the elders about 
what I've been doing through the week. Austin gives me a report. We meet as pastors and lead team and we talk about our lives and we pray together about our successes and our failures. We need accountability to avoid giving in to temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So no temptation is unique to you. Every man, every woman has had these same temptations at some time, maybe not every temptation, but over history, there's nothing new under the sun. Number three, we should cultivate a healthy fear of God and his judgment against our sin. We need to grow in our reverence of God, realize he's holy, he's high, he's lifted up. Good to go to Isaiah 6 in the first eight verses and read about what Isaiah, what Isaiah experienced in the presence of God. He said, woe is me. I am undone in the presence of this holy God. He had a healthy fear of God. Fourthly, we need to know we are never out of God's care. He never gives up on us. Even when we uh, fall down the road of sin. In Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus has been through all the temptations you and I have experienced and yet was without sin. So he can sympathize with us as he prays for us as our high priest. And lastly, we need to find the way home to God through repentance. We need to find the way home to God through repentance. 1 John 1, 9, many of you have memorized this verse. I call it the, the Christian uh, version of what soap is. It says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we just celebrate in communion, the blood of Christ forgives us and washes us away from sin. I close with this very short story. It's a story about a church father named Athanasius. Listen to this very carefully. He was an early bishop of the Church of Alexandria. He stoutly opposed the teachings of Arius, who declared that Christ was not the eternal Son of God, but he was a subordinate being to God the Father. He was not equal. Well, Athanasius was hounded. He was exiled five different times because he opposed Arius. He was finally summoned before Emperor Theodius, who demanded that he cease his opposition to Arius. The emperor reproved him and asked, Do you not realize, Athanasius, that all the world is against you? And Athanasius quickly answered, Then I am against all the world. Then I am against all the world. Well, we stand against sin, even when those around us are compromising, are giving in to sin. Let's bow for prayer. Fathers, we sing this last song as we think about that list of sin that we looked at earlier in our service. Help us today to go home and throughout this week and just contemplate and understand in a new and fresh way how you view sin. And all that it cost you by sending your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. To be able to 
be the propitiation or the payment for our sins so we can have a relationship with you. And Lord, so that we can not regard iniquity in our heart because when we do that, you will not listen to our prayers, but that we will be quick to confess our sins. And Lord, help us as we look at the culture around us, not to get involved in the curiosity of it, start to comply with it, start to get confused about what sin is, and then finally face the consequences. Help us to root out sin in our lives. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.